Welcome to the Lowdown Podcast. This edition was produced specially for Columbia Alumni Leaders Experience 2020. Hello, listeners, and welcome to our final Lowdown Podcast for the Columbia Alumni Leaders Experience, a five-week program of virtual sessions organized around key themes in contemporary leadership. This week is focused on the need for interdisciplinary perspectives in leadership, and on today's podcast, we'll look at how this is affecting the tech sector. My guest today is Moselle Thompson, a three-time Columbia graduate, CEO of Thompson Strategic Consulting, and a sought-after thought leader in business, technology, and policy. Moselle, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for, for inviting me to participate. Uh, let me take a second first uh, to say something about uh, the leaders, um, the leaders experience. I know that we have some really substantial challenge and I've participated in Leaders Weekend before. And the challenges for this year are unique, but like Colombians have always done, they have been able to mount what I think is an innovative and exciting program that has a little bit of something for everybody. And I think that we all can learn something from each other. And I can't think of a better example than what you've done with this program. That being said, uh, I think the Colombians are all isolated at home and uh, trying to figure out what to do after watching everything they could on Netflix. And uh, so I think that these kinds of programs are particularly insightful because I think that what it also means is you're hearing from people who've gone through the same Columbia experience. They have all have a Columbia experience and it all relates back to what they are doing now. They may have a different take on it. They may have a different application, a different history with it, but it's something that we all share together. And um, that's what makes it fun. Columbia people are innovative and they're clever. They're not just smart, but they're clever. And not many, not many alumni organizations could have pulled this off. Congratulations. I think the fact that this is occurring and it's been as fun and successful as it has been is a, a tribute not only to everybody who's worked on this, all the countless volunteers, but what we also got from Columbia. Thank you, Moselle. This is a 100% volunteer-led effort, and it's a real tribute to our alumni volunteer community. Now, you've graduated from Columbia College, the law school, and the School of International and Public Affairs. After a stint at Skadden Arps, you dedicated the better part of the next several decades in public service, culminating with your tenure as a Federal Trade Commissioner. That was during the Clinton administration and the beginning of the internet and a burgeoning tech sector in Silicon Valley. What was that time like, both from a historical perspective and how the federal government and the FTC in particular thought about regulations for the beginning of the tech sector as we know it today? You know, you're right that um, I came to the FTC about the time that we, we were beginning to look at the uh, issues around this new area called the internet and, its, and, and the first internet bubble. And 
even then you began to see the kernels of what it is today. Uh, some hallmarks of what, what Silicon Valley was then and still is now, notwithstanding the fact that it's had its ups and downs. For example, um, you have many people, young and older, but especially younger people who were gathered together in the Valley thinking about new ways and approaches to problem solving and issues, um, dealing uh, with not only the use of technology, but how technology can be applied to make people's lives better. And you began to see that early on, and that carries through even today. And so you see people all around the world flocking to Silicon Valley and areas similar to that throughout the world where they can meet like people who can challenge the status quo about how we've done things in the past with a basis in technology. But it's not just the technology itself, meaning uh, knowing how to code, but it's an approach to innovation that uh, I call this sort of gee whiz approach. You know, um, why, why don't we think about different ways of doing things that make, uh, make, for example, goods and services and ideas and communications more, more um, accessible to a wider range of people. You know, and the FTC at that time, we were the US government's and still are the US government's consumer protection agency and antitrust agency. So it was just beginning to understand, uh, for example, how do you, you begin to provide protection for consumers at a time when the consumer is going from bricks and mortar to shopping online and beginning to communicate with salespeople and marketers in a virtual world and not an actual world. Those challenges still exist today. So let's fast forward. You're now running Thompson Strategic Consulting and you have advised some of the leading tech companies and highly creative startups. You obviously spend a significant amount of time with leaders in the industry. As you work with these highly motivated and creative professionals, what observations can you make about how leadership plays a role in strategic planning for tech companies? Well, I think every one of these, uh, a lot of the companies that we know, whether it's Microsoft or Google or Facebook or any, any of the technology companies, they, they all have a culture. And I think there are certain elements to the, the culture um, in each one of these companies, even Apple. Um, one is um, taking fresh approaches to, uh, to problems that people may have seen as untractable or intractable or, um, or, uh, or things that we can look at differently. So let's take, for example, Facebook. Um, Facebook, a lot of people think now is just a, 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 a social network. But I think that Facebook at its core, when it was started, and, and they still believe this, is about how do we um, 
sort of level a playing field so that there's not a pyramid to information so that people can not only just get information from top down the way we used to get it, but also horizontally between each other. And, and that is the basis for a lot of what social media is about. And it's also the basis of some of the challenges as well. But, and, and similarly, Google is about how do we get access to information that, uh, uh, and finding things that we would normally not have been able to find before. Um, and, it's, and Apple, it's, it's a combination of hardware and software, but uh, it's how do we make personal communications uh, more immediate, accessible, and relevant to how people live their lives. So you see all of these have these sort of core elements of, um, of, of being a more, uh, how do we change how people relate to each other using technology? One of the challenges uh, uh, when you think that way too, though, is um, maybe uh, some of the, the things that we do offline are not easily transferable to an online world and not easy, easily um, uh, uh, um, relevant to technology. And those are part of the constant growing pains I think you see when you deal with technology and how it applies to society. Based on that, Roselle, what are the characteristics that lead leaders in the tech sector need as we move forward? I think there's some of, some of them are the challenges for any business, especially as they become successful, is to create environments that are open and not closed. You know, one of the temptations that all of us have is once we know something, then it's harder to, to, to stretch to think about and embrace things we don't know. And I think that um, that's where technology leaders can be helpful and should be helpful in a wide range of sectors, not only in other lines of, of the economy, but also in how we deal with education and how we deal with government, that, um, that being open to new approaches to things is a really important element of how the tech sector uh, looks at things. And I think that that's a positive thing. And if you, if you look at why America tech, uh, America's tech sector is a leader, it's partly because of that, that we create an environment where people can, what I call, use the gee whiz factor and walk into um, any uh, situation and think about, well, not just the use of technology, but how do we change some of the, reduce some of the barriers to communications and access, et cetera, and not necessarily wedded to what's happened before. That's part of what America's about. And the technology sector is a reflection of that, probably faster. And, uh, but, uh, but it's still part of the same core value. And so that's what I, I like to see in tech sector leadership that I would also like to see in other areas of what we do in daily life. The tech sector has been criticized for its lack of women and people of color in leadership roles. How can tech and social media companies lead as agents of change in diversification, inclusion, and equity 
across the sector? I think this is an area of real challenge for them. <clears throat> um, and, and I've raised it before. Um, as the tech sector becomes more and more ubiquitous as a reflect, as, as a part of society, it has to reflect society as well. And uh, part of this is um, how we deal with technology, at least in the US, is that there are lots of barriers to women and people of color who are in science and math and engineering, and it starts early on. And that culture is carried forward so that as people progress up the food chain and some of those technical areas, you see fewer people, women and people of color. And part of it is that uh, how we treat people in, with STEM education, but it goes up the food chain. And I think um, uh, the tech sector has a particular responsibility because they're so tied to what I call the, um, they, if you want to clamor to be part of the social fabric of life, then you have to be able to address some of the gaps in that social fabric. That's where they have responsibility and they have to try harder. It's, um, it's an important area. And I would, and I know that they've been capable of, of, of surmounting so many other challenges. This is one that, um, that I, I, I think they have a particular need to address in a more direct and rapid fashion. So let's shift gears. We are recording this podcast the day after the Biden-Harris ticket was declared the winners of the 2020 presidential election. There's been a lot of discussion about what a Democratic administration means for the tech sector. What are the most significant shifts in policy you see emerging come Inauguration Day? Well, I think one of the observations I've made publicly is that when people have looked at the tech sector and you see congressional hearings, for example, that they tend to focus on the, the ends of the bell curve. There's a, there, there's a right wing who believes that tech should be regulated because they don't, um, they're, they're, they, um, that they're not hospitable to conservative viewpoints. And then there's a left who believes that they, the tech doesn't censor enough because they're, they don't uh, do enough to police um, uh, posts for truth and, uh, and for, for racist statements and, and, and violent statements. And I think that what you see then is you look on the Hill, you have regulation that, that, that people are talking about, like people are talking about changing the antitrust laws um, and some people are talking about using that as a way to control content. I frankly think what was interesting about this particular election is that to the extent that the discussion about tech regulation has been focused on the edges of the bell curve, I think that those are gonna be less attractive as, as areas for regulation as people begin to look toward the middle and talk about what tech does well and what are the opportunities for tech to do better and to look at not just whether it's an antitrust question, but all sorts of other areas 
where if people want tech to take more responsibility, that's going to be a discussion not just based on what people think are particular grievance, but looking at the balance between what is it the tech does well, as well as what the tech what does tech not do well. That's a discussion that I've talked about for a very long time. You know, back in 2000, I was one of the first commissioners to ask that, for example, that Congress pass uh, some sort of baseline privacy legislation. Um, and the industry really objected because they didn't want barriers. Now that there are so many people and so many different entities clamoring for privacy legislation, they kind of wish that they actually followed my recommendation and had some baseline to go from uh, today. And I think that what's lacking in a discussion, for example, of data is that there's so many different people who have interest in data, whether it's people who have national security interests or people who have uh, um, uh, marketing interests. I would really like to hear a discussion with the American people about what's the reasonable expectation for the use of their data. Because they're not usually, I want to be, um, I want to be totally private or I, don't, I want to be totally open. It depends on what the subject is. So I think that if, if, the, if, if this government can, do, and Congress, when I say government, that's not only the executive branch, but also Congress, can engage in a discussion that really talks about that, then maybe we can talk about a regulation that would enhance how technology relates to society and how society can have a reasonable expectation about how tech is supposed to behave. But for that to happen, there really has to be a shift in the leadership paradigm, both in tech and the federal government. Where does that come from? Where do you come in on that? Well, what I am hoping with, with the new administration is the, and the outcome of this election is something that actually should attract a lot of Columbia students and alumni, that to the extent that we've spent many years studying uh, things about, uh, about truth and fact, that those become much more of a, um, a, a part of our discussion not just the extreme cases of things, but to talk really about how tech works, what exactly happens, and how we can talk about um, candidly, bring people together and reach some consensus. That's what I would like to see, uh, fact-based discussions and analysis around a, a, a range of stakeholders to talk about what can be the right answer? Not just the answer for a particular group of people, but for what's in the middle of the bell curve, the highest and best uses for most people. That's what I would like to see. And I know that that's wishful thinking, but I actually have some hope that that's where this administration could lead us. I wanna dive a little deeper into something we addressed briefly before about the increasing critical role tech plays in our lives. I think there are a few key areas that impact us most. And the first one you've already spoken a bit about, privacy. Mm -hmm. Well, look, I think privacy is important. 
And I think that we have to talk about what privacy means. And um, it's clear that uh, people are not comfortable with this sense that they, they don't know where the information that's gathered about them is going. Um, that's true. But I also think that, you know, people have this schizophrenic relationship. Um, you, you can say, I don't want the government to know anything about me, for example, but I want you to protect me from terrorists. There's got to be a discussion of what's that, what does that mean? Not just the, the brief phrases and snippets. This, this carries on into privacy and security, but what does it exactly mean? And then if you ask people, um, I don't want marketers to have all the data about my shopping habits, but I expect Amazon to remember that I was there before and I ordered widgets from them. So, so I think you have to talk to public realistically about, well, what is their reasonable expectation of information about them? And it also means that they have to have a better understanding that this is not just a technology question. I think one of the things I learned at the FTC, people would be absolutely amazed at what information is publicly available about them. I mean, not talking about what exists on uh, your shopping habits at walmart.com, but the fact that information is available about your tax records from, from your local government or the all sorts of other information that's out there. Um, and I think people would be uh, surprised. And so uh, I think part of that discussion about data is does it change the character of data of pe if people are able, like Google does, is to combine the searches that you do with publicly available information? And so that changes, um, I always tell people that you can anonymize information, but with a little bit more information, that anonymized data becomes closer and closer to your house, okay? so. I think those are, and I think the American public is not stupid. I think that they're ready for that kind of discussion. And I think that uh, I'm, I would encourage that to happen. So um, that, so, and, and security is, is, a, is also a tricky thing. I think a lot of people don't realize that the government has a lot of information and we want them to have a lot of information so they can protect us from bad things. And so, Although, for example, there's always been this big debate between the US, for example, and the EU about our view of, of data. What a lot of people may not know is that our governments share information all the time about people and security threats, all the time. And um, so even though one country or another may claim that they're they are more protective of information than others. There are noticeable gaps in those areas too. So we should actually talk about that. And, um, and I, I think that's very, that, that, that I think people should know. And, if, and I guess one of the challenges because government doesn't talk about it. And just like with privacy that companies don't talk about it, people are left to infer the worst. And some of it is benign. Some of it is concerning, but some of it's benign. Now, what about mobility? I think this is more and more important, okay? Um, 
partly because of this, is that people are more and more re relying on, um, on their cell phones. Because, yeah, I think most people don't realize the what you have on your average iPhone or Android phone is uh, more than you uh, more computing capability than what you had in your PC five years ago. And um, and what that means is for that portability and that mobility that you also have uh, you have certain kinds of risks, you know, if you lose your cell phone the amount of information that people could have about you is pretty significant. And, uh, and it's also to say nothing about the fact that I think if most people lose their cell phone, they don't know what meetings they have in any given day. So I, I think that, um, I think that we, we, that's another part of the data equation that we need to talk about more because I think that the people don't really understand it. Now, I also have another, when you use the phrase mobility, I have another part of that, which is this, is that mobility means different things to different people. So for example, um, take what we have with the COVID uh, virus right now, that there are a lot of people who can't go to school and there is a difference a, a, a marked difference in access to mobile computing and mobile technology for the people who are poor and the people who are not. So it's very easy to carry on a Zoom lesson or whatever if you have access to Wi-Fi, if you have access to a portable device that's capable. But there are large segments of the economy, not just poor people in inner cities, but people in rural America who don't have that. And so that's where mobility becomes important, not only physical mobility, but also social mobility. And finally, what about trust? Oh, this is, if you ask me the biggest change that I've seen over the past four years is the erosion of trust, not only in, um, not only in leadership generally, not only in what your government tells you, but all, and business tells you, but also what you what you trust um, your neighbors to tell you. I would like, if you ask me, the biggest change uh, change I would like to see, the biggest aspiration, is um, is for this new administration to encourage people to cut each other some slack here in the sense that um, I think that we need to work toward our better selves. And uh, that doesn't mean that you, you trust everything that you hear, but I think that we need to be able to ask questions and not feel threatened by, the, by asking questions and asking for answers. You know, we at, at Columbia are spoiled. Um, that uh, we're trained to know to to feel like more information is better than less information. That um, and that armed with better information, that we will make better decisions. Not everybody 
uh, we're, we have spent uh, quite a while, and it's not just the past four years, but we're edging toward this, where people are less concerned about the truth, they're concerned about their truth. We have to do better than that. Because, uh, I mean, I've always, I, I, I kind of laugh, you know, when people talk, start talking about, well, you know, so-and-so is under investigation because of the deep state. To me, I was always trained that, that that means law enforcement. That means that that when 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 uh, when the police or um, or governments investigating you for fraud or for tax evasion or whatever, that's not the deep state. That's law enforcement. And I'd like to be able to get to a point when we have some discussion and some reasonable consensus that um, that there is a right and wrong. There is a truth and there is something else and facts actually make a difference. And I know that for a lot of people like, a, like the folks who were trained at Columbia, that would be very refreshing. And, uh, but I, I also think that also places a higher value in not only our, our alums, but the students that we train. There, there, is, there is a place for, for, for truth and justice, okay? There is. I continue to be an optimist. For this last segment, I want to look at the global tech environment. You've worked multinational technology corporations and you've alluded to different environments in the EU and the United States. How do American tech companies stay competitive and retain their ability to expand beyond the US? Well, this is one of the challenges I think we have. We have an open market and we have also believed, for example, with information that, uh, that the answer is not censorship, but con combating bad information with good information. And what I worry about is if we start down the road to taking uh, technology and the internet down a road where we as a government feel like that if someone says something we don't like or somebody publishes something on a platform that we shut down the platform. That's what they do in China, okay? So you can't see a range of viewpoints. That's what they do in Turkey. So you can't say anything bad about the prime minister. Um, I'd like to think that there's something broader that, that we, we aspire to something greater than that. Now, I do make a distinction between things that are blatantly false, okay? Like uh, fake COVID cures and things like that. Or if someone says, gives information, uh, uh, governments or otherwise that are clearly harmful or hateful. But I, but I draw that distinction between um, what I call societal harm and um, what I call uh, political expediency. Uh, I think that that's, and if America has always been um, the place for openness and it's been a champion for all of its industries in an open market around the world, I'd like to see us go back to that because we're good at it. And when we have openness in markets and we have openness in competition, Americans win because we are great competitors, okay? 
we come up with the best ideas and we lead the world. And I think that that's something America has always been good at, whether it's the idea of a democracy or whether it's, uh, or, or whether it's Google. Um, and that's the way I think that we can continue to lead. It, it, it's, it's almost like the uh, president-elect said yesterday is that um, leading by example. And I, and I think that our example still shines bright and I wanna be sure that we get back to that. What about the critics who say too much openness leads to piracy and who present this as a rationale for isolationism? Um, well, look, you could be, um, you could be perfectly safe as you stay at home and lock your doors, but that doesn't do much good for you. And it doesn't do much good for society. I do think that there are things that you can do to, uh, and, and that governments around the world can and should do to protect privacy and, and protect, uh, Prevent, uh, to protect privacy, prevent theft and piracy, and to protect intellectual property. Um, and I think, for example, the, the objections that America has, as, as well as many other countries, have against the, the Chinese uh, demanding access to intellectual property to enter their market is not only inappropriate, but also something that we shouldn't stand for if we want them, if they want to also participate in our marketplace. So I think there are ways of doing that. And, but I also have, um, I also have a lot of confidence in our ability to innovate in being ahead of other people and other countries. You know, people, we take it for granted, but People from all over the world come to the United States because if they have an idea, this is the place to launch it. And I, that still exists. We, can do, we could and should do more to protect those ideas, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't still fight to be that place where if you have a... Um, if you have an idea, if you have a, um, if you have a problem that you want to solve, that this is the bright, brightest and shiniest place to do it. And that, that hasn't changed. And um, I'm hoping that to the extent that that might have been some question before that with, with the change of a new administration that uh, we can reestablish ourselves uh, as world leaders in that regard. Finally, as we mentioned, America has just gone through a most important election. Mm -hmm. What's on your wish list, Moselle, over the next four years? I wish that people in America can have confidence and not be fearful of new ideas and change. If there's one of the hallmarks of American history is that America has always reinvented itself and always had the capacity to do that. 
faster and better than just about anyone else. And part of that is because it's willing to respect and actually value ideas from people no matter what they look like or where they came from and to make them all Americans. I would like to see us continue to value that and talk about that. So if you ask me the things that I would like to see the most is for us to remember that what separates us, you know, I look at the election, that uh, a lot of people in politics run on their differences. But if we take a step back a little, we would all recognize we have more in common than we have differences. I think that's a great place to end and on a hopeful note. On behalf of the CAA and the Columbia Alumni Leaders Experience, I really want to thank you for your time and insight. It's always a treat, and I always learn something new talking to you. Thank you, Moselle, and thank you to our listeners. Don't forget to download the app, CrowdCompass Attendee Hub, to make sure you don't miss anything from the Columbia Alumni Leaders Experience running through November 14th.